Chapter 17 of The Road to Mandalay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marianne Hadley. The Road to Mandalay by Bithia Mary Croker. Chapter 17 At the Play. Theatrical performances are the chief entertainment in Burma. The Burmese, as a nation, delight in plays, operatic, tragic, opera bouffe, and ballets, such as the Han Pui, when a number of young girls, all dressed as royalties, posture and dance with extreme grace, and as their training is perfect, the entertainment evokes unqualified applause. So interested and absorbed do the audiences become in long, drawn-out dramatic performances, with interludes of dancing and singing, that they will bring their bedding, and not merely remain all night, but several nights, according as the play may hold them. As a rule, the background is a palace, and the plot concerns the love story of a prince and princess, which is interrupted by all manner of vicissitudes, some grotesque, others of genuine pathos. To these the accompaniment of soft, wailing Burmese music is admirably adapted. Po Sine, the greatest actor in Burma, an eastern star, had recently returned to Rangoon from a prolonged tour, and his admirers, who numbered thousands, were all agog to see and welcome him. The principal theatre was established in a large space at the back of the great pagoda, trustfully open to the soft blue night, otherwise strictly encompassed with matting, for in these changed and money-making days there was an official box-office at the entrance, and no admittance without cash payment. The stage was only raised a foot or two from the ground, and a long row of little lamps threw a becoming red light upon the scene. Here many rows of chairs were arranged for the use of Europeans, whilst the Easterners sat on the ground on mats and folded themselves up in easy native fashion. On the first night of Poseidon's reappearance, the arena was packed to the utmost limit of the matting. In the front were assembling many European residents, who were treated to bunches of flowers, paper fans, cheroots and lemonade. Also, in a reserved space and on gorgeous rugs, reclined a number of splendidly attired and bejeweled Burmese ladies, princesses of the royal house, a sprightly and animated group. Their flashing diamond combs and long diamond chains made a feature amid the audience. Mrs. Gregory had brought a small party, which included Mina Pomeroy, Robin Close, one of the assistants, and Douglas Shafto, who had never yet seen the famous Poseign. Somehow Miss Pomeroy and Mr. Close had contrived to get separated from their chaperone, but Shafto still stuck faithfully to his hostess. A puppet play represented the curtain-raiser, and as this to Shafto was no novelty, he stared about him at the masses of shining black heads, men with jaunty silk handkerchiefs twisted round their brows, women with their wreaths and golden combs, 
an undeniably smart audience, all smoking. The stage was open to the dark blue sky, which was sprinkled with stars. Right above them clanged a temple gong. From far down the river came the hoot of a steamer's siren, and during intervals the soft humming of the wind among the labyrinth of shrines. A complete contrast in every respect was this eastern scene to the last play he had witnessed in a London theatre. All at once there was an influx of people surging in, crafty folk who knew how to avoid the curtain-raiser. These included a number of Germans. Among the party in the train of Mrs. Muller and attended by Herr Bernard was Miss Lee in a dainty white frock and flower-trimmed hat, but somehow looking a bit out of the picture. Her chaperone, magnificent in a Vietnamese toilette, unexpectedly encountered friends who had recently arrived from the fatherland. These she hailed with boisterous jubilation, and as she chattered and gesticulated, listened and interrupted, she entirely forgot her charge. In fact, she moved on, still talking, and abandoned her, so to speak, to her fate. Sophie's fate, luckily for her, happened to be Mrs. Gregory, who signed to Shafto to rescue the young lady and conduct her to a place under her own wing. "'How are you?' he said, accosting her eagerly. "'Mrs. Gregory has sent me to ask if you won't sit by her. There is lots of room.' "'I should love to. But you see I am here officially with Mrs. Muller. I'll go and speak to her, but I think she has filled my seat.' A hasty word to the chaperone, who had entirely forgotten her existence, released Sophie, and, as she joined Mrs. Gregory, Frau Muller said with a shrug, "'Oh, yes, she is rather pretty in her way. She has got among those odious English. Let her stay with them.' Then she threw herself once more into the interesting topic of the latest scandal in Frankfurt. "'I am so pleased to see you,' said Mrs. Gregory, making room for Sophie beside her. "'What has become of you all these weeks?' "'Oh, I have been in Coquine, and quite safe,' she answered. But her smile was not so ready and hold-hearted as it had been on board ship. And Flora caught a chill and has been laid up. Poor dear, she is a martyr to neuralgia. I know she is subject to it, but surely she does not require you to be with her all day.' "'No, but Herr Krauss is at home now. "'The old cook has departed after a fearful explosion, "'and housekeeping is a struggle. "'Servants are so difficult to find and deal with, "'especially by a strange missy like myself. "'And Herr Krauss is particular about punctuality "'and the plates being hot, and all that sort of thing. "'I have to make Russian salads, confitures, and sauces, so I have really had no spare time. Yes, I can imagine your hands have been pretty full, but do you mean to tell me that you run the house? I don't exactly run it, but I do my best to drag it along, and it's rather awkward for my being a newcomer. Pice and rupees are novelties, and everything is supposed to be in German fashion. German fashion, echoed Shafto. What's that? Oh, particular hours, particular food, bloodwurst, sausages, Russian salads, cakes, creams, and plenty of them. Well, 
I must say Krauss looks sleek and well-fed. He does you credit. But don't you ever get your Sunday off or your day out? I suppose I do, in a way. I have been to dine with one or two of our neighbors, and we had some really first-rate music. And then, you see, we live at a long distance from the cantonment and the gymkhana. But what about the car? Herr Krauss uses it. He is away most of the day. But you have a horse to ride? Yes, there was one. Rather a nice-looking little bay. But soon after I arrived he was borrowed by a man who has taken it up to Prome. Mrs. Gregory had been listening to this conversation, making mental notes and setting down bad marks. Her cousin was returning from Mandalay on the following day, and she determined that she and Millie would wait upon Mrs. Krause and request her to liberate this prisoner. Mrs. Krause was a charming, indolent, clinging sort of individual, who had latterly sunken into a somnolent existence and rarely appeared above the social surface. Formerly she had been a brilliant figure in Rangoon society, gave excellent dinners, danced, rode and played bridge, and tennis. But by degrees she seemed to have dropped out of things, and Mrs. Gregory remembered now, once upon a time, when riding together, she had lamented that she had no children and no particular interests, and that her energy, such as it was, was ebbing rapidly. Of course she had been too long in Lower Burma. Eight years of Lower Burma, merely diluted with an occasional few weeks at Maimyo, was enough to undermine any woman's mental and bodily state. "'And so your aunt has been ill?' she asked, after a long pause. "'Yes, but she is much better now, and very cheerful. "'So I was able to leave her and accept Mrs. Muller's invitation "'to accompany her to this play. "'You have seen nothing so far? "'Well, not so much, but there is lots of time.' "'Mrs. Gregory glanced at the girl, and, in the searching electric light, "'noticed that her lovely color was already fading.' The lines of the face seemed a trifle sharper. Beauty is fleeting in Lower Burma. Meanwhile Shafto, sitting so silent at the lady's feet, was secretly boiling with rage. So the fat old German, in spite of his wealth, had made his wife's niece both sick nurse and housekeeper. One of these tasks was ample for any girl. Miss Lee had been six weeks in Rangoon, had never even seen the pagoda. "'I know you are fond of riding,' he began. "'Do you think you could come for a gallop if I produced a pony?' "'And a chaperone,' supplemented Mrs. Gregory. "'I can offer my services and a mount, and I'll call for you at seven o'clock on Thursday morning. "'You may come, too,' she added, turning to Shafto, "'and we will go to the pineapple forest.' "'How delightful and how very kind of you,' said Sophie. "'I am sure I can manage, as long as I am in by nine o'clock.' "'But why nine o'clock, my dear Cinderella?' "'Because I have to interview the cook when he returns from the bazaar. "'Herr Kraus is something of a gourmand, and rather querulous about his food, "'and he often brings in one or two men to tiffin or dinner.' "'A nice amusing change,' said Shafto. You must find old Kraus a bit monotonous. What does he talk about? Wolfram or sausages? 
He talks a good deal about my aunt. He really is devoted to her. Well, I'll mark him up one for that. I suppose the guests are his own compatriots? Yes, they come on business and are nearly always the same. They talk German all the time, which I cannot understand. Only when they stare at me and say something about Englanderin after dinner, we have music, and Herr Kraus and I play duets. His instrument is the violin. Most of the neighbors are musical, first-rate musicians and so critical. I appreciate that. It keeps me up to the mark. I think among them they all keep you up to the mark, observed Mrs. Gregory. And whatever she was about to add was abruptly interrupted by a loud, swelling, unanimous murmur of Ah wah! Ah wah! which suddenly rose from a thousand throats. This rapturous acclaim hailed the appearance of Poe Sign, the star of the Burmese theatre, unsurpassed and unapproachable in either tragedy or comedy. Poe Sign was nothing to look at, a thin, ordinary little man, but endowed with genius. Even those who could not understand a word he said immediately recognized the great actor. This particular play was a favorite comedy. Shouts of laughter shook the audience and the encompassing walls of matting, and in this Shafto and his companion could not help joining. I wonder what this is all about, said Sophie. I know it's very amusing. What was that funny thing he said last? she asked, as the shrieks died down. Shafto colored guiltily. Though far from being an expert in the Burmese language, he had caught the drift of this sentence, a coarse double entendre, which he could not possibly interpret to a girl. Burmese plays are not always decorous. This particular performance was an odd mixture of ancient and modern. The lovers, who were, as usual, princes and princesses, played stately roles and moved about with majestic dignity and in gorgeous raiment. Their prototypes dated from the days of Buddha. On the other hand, the clown and the countrymen, who enacted the parts of villains and devils, were essentially modern, as quick with patter songs and up-to-date local events and jokes as the cleverest music-hall artist. At intervals, the weird Burmese band, with its clashing cymbals, harps, and clarions, discoursed the latest Burmese operatic airs. It was one o'clock, and the great bell in the heart of the pagoda had throbbed out its long, deep note, when Mrs. Gregory rose and collected her party. "'I'm so sorry I can't take you with me,' she said to Sophie. "'I hope your German friends will not remain all night. However, I shall depute Mr. Shafto to look after you. Please tell your aunt that I hope to call and see her very shortly, and do not forget that you are to ride with me on Thursday morning.' as if it was likely. Then Mrs. Gregory took her departure, leaving Sophie and her companion to a tete-a-tete. -tete. "'I think we will move up closer to your friends,' he said. "'I see two empty seats behind them. Our people can't stick this for more than three or four hours. How have you been getting on, and how do you like Burma?' "'Burma suits me down to the ground.' I like it most awfully. I've been very busy learning my job. 
but I've seen a good deal outside business hours. What have you seen? Oh, well, wrestling, tattooing, and cockfights. I have been once up the river as far as Prome, and to several native shows, including a funeral. How have you managed that? Salter, a fellow in our house, took me. The funeral was a strange affair, not a bit like ours. Everyone in Gaelic clothes, great feasting and a band in the house, altogether a lively entertainment. When a man is dying, his friends come and gather round and cheer him and tell him of all the good deeds he has done in his lifetime. At the graveside there is an extraordinary business with a silk handkerchief in which the nearest relation is supposed to catch and enclose the departed spirit, and now in the form of a white butterfly and dangerous to mortals for seven days and nights. I have seen a good deal of native life already. How lucky you are, exclaimed the girl, and I've seen nothing but Germans. Salter has taken me about, and naturally he has extra opportunities being married to a Burmese. Married to a Burmese? echoed Sophie. Her tone was incredulous. Yes, at one time it was quite a common thing. Mrs. Salter, her real name is Millet, is sitting over there, in about the fifth row back, behind the fellow with the scarlet handkerchief twisted around his head. Presently you must turn and look at her. She is a nice, cheery woman, and Salter is an interesting, original sort of man. I dine with them now and then. Millet is uncommonly businesslike, has a good deal of land and a flourishing rice concern. She has? How amazing! I see you don't know much of Burma yet. No, so far I am only acquainted with the bizarre prices, the gorgeous flowers, delicious fruit, and futurist insects. Well, women do most of the business, and do it well. The men are lazy, loafing lot, very genial and sporting, fond of their cockfighting and gambling, absolutely regardless of expense or debt. Mrs. Salter is rich. If you will look round now, you will see her, the little woman with the yellow fan and diamond comb. Notice her blazing earrings. And yet I have seen the same lady with her petticoats kilted high, standing knee-deep in the rice cart, and diving with both hands into the grain to test its quality. That is a very pretty girl with flowers in her hair beside her, remarked Sophie. Look, she is nodding to you. Who is she? Her name is Machit. She is Mrs. Salter's cousin. Sometimes she drops in where, when I am here. The Salters live close to my chummery. I have a munchie now, and I am learning Burmese. And, and I am learning German. How do you hit it off with your uncle? Please don't call him my uncle. Then I am answered. Sophie laughed and colored brilliantly. I suppose so. We do not coalesce. Our ideas, age, and country are different. He is hard as a rock, brusque and overbearing, but amazingly clever and energetic. He seems to hold so many threads in his hands to deal with such numbers of people. His correspondence is enormous. His office, when he is at home, is surrounded and stormed by all sorts of people. Mohammedans, Chinese, Burmese, 
all waiting on his good pleasure and his nod. I scarcely see anything of him except at meals, and then he is too much taken up with eating to have time to spare for conversation. But we meet in one spot, music land. He plays the violin, we do Beethoven together, and are great friends. Then when the piano closes, she paused, you are enemies? Not exactly enemies, but I do hate the way he gobbles his food and bullies the servants. Then he says such rude things about England. Perhaps it's only done on purpose to make me angry. He declares we are a wretched, rotten, played-out old country, going down the hill as hard as we can fly. He is narrow-minded, too, so arrogant. The Germans can do no wrong. The English can never do right. I am telling dreadful tales, am I not? All the same, he has an English wife, and is simply devoted to Aunt Flora. Nothing is too good for her. It is really funny to see this rough, overbearing man so gentle and thoughtful. But then, she is a dear. Oh, is she? You shall see for yourself. You must come to tea on Sunday. I am sure I may invite you. Aunt Flora is so kind and sympathetic, and has a look of mother. I'll come all right, if you think she'll not be derwazabund. No, she is ever so much better, but the last few years has been more or less an invalid. What is her particular illness? Is it fever? Fever and neuralgia. Some days she will lie in a darkened room, and see no one except her ayah. She won't even admit me, though occasionally I do slip in. She has had a bad attack lately, but is now convalescent. Oh, I see Mrs. Muller moving at last. Now we shall be going. I'm afraid you found this show a bit dull. Not at all. It has been a most interesting sight. I don't know when I have enjoyed myself so much. So have I. It has been a... Whatever Shafto was about to add was interrupted by Mrs. Muller, who pounced on his companion with a laughing apology, and handed her over to the charge of Herr Bernard. Two days later Mrs. Gregory and Mrs. Millward called at Heidelberg, and on the veranda encountered Sophie, who was hurrying out to keep an appointment to practice duets with Frau Muller. "'I'm so dreadfully sorry,' she said when the first greetings were over, but I must go. I'll get back as soon as ever I can. Aunt Flora is at home. But when Sophie returned, the visitors had already departed, leaving their hostess a good deal disturbed. Indeed, Mrs. Krause's languid spirits had been violently shaken. Mrs. Millward had remarked on Sophie's changed appearance, and her tone had been hostile. "'Is very plain that Burma does not suit her,' she said. "'I could not believe that any girl would have altered in so short a time. "'I shall write to her mother at once. "'Oh, dear Mrs. Millward, what do you mean?' "'I should think any one could see what I mean,' rejoined the lady, "'who was very angry and had heard the tale of Sophie's heavy cares. "'The girl looks ill. I have known Sophie for years.' known her since she was a small child, and I can assure you that she has never been accustomed to a strenuous indoor employment, to getting no exercise 
or relaxation, or ever meeting people of her own age. Her hostess was struck dumb. Her torpid conscience suddenly awoke and condemned her. Mrs. Millward, who was immediately leaving Rangoon, and had no fear of retaliation, continued with ruthless animosity. "'It is true what you say, that your niece has been a wonderful comfort to you. But will it be a comfort to her mother, when she hears that she is merely a hard-worked lady help? I think it would be well to arrange that she should return home with me.' Tears now trembled in the culprit's dark eyes, and she fumbled for her handkerchief. "'Oh, Mrs. Millward,' she said piteously, "'I do see what you mean. I have been ill and stupid. My husband has always spoiled me, and thinks that other people are only brought into this world to wait upon me. I realize my selfishness now. Yes, you are right. The child looks pale and no longer flits about the house, singing her little songs. I beg you will not alarm my sister. I will undertake that things are altered, and you may depend on me, dear Mrs. Millward. You have made me feel horribly guilty. I know I am a self-centered invalid, but I intend to mend my ways. And tears, no longer to be restrained, trickled down that worn, cadaverous face of Mrs. Krause. End of chapter 17